0: A Christmas Carol is now 175 years old. Written in 1843, it's certainly the most televised of Dickens' works, and equals, if not beats, its closest rival, Oliver Twist, for cinema releases. It's had a huge influence on the way we understand the Christmas festival. It was written at a time when the festival was being revived after centuries of neglect, and its impact was almost immediate. A Christmas Carol quickly achieved iconic status, far more so than any of our Dickens' other Christmas stories. You would have had to have been living on a, some far-off planet not to have heard of the story. The word Scrooge has come to represent miserliness, and bar humbug is a phrase often resorted to when indicating someone is a curmudgeon. Even Field Marshal Montgomery concluded his Christmas Eve message to the eighth Army on the battlefield with Tiny Tim's blessing. In eighteen thirty six, Dickens described Christmas at Dingley Dell in the Pickwick Papers, in which of course one of the most famous of the interpolated tales appears, the story of the goblins who stole a sexton. And for those who know the tale, the miserable and mean Gabriel Grubb is not a million miles away from Scrooge. Both Mr Pickwick's Christmas at Wardle's in 1901 and Gabriel Grubb at the Surly Sexton, 1904, were used as the basis for silent films at around the same time as the first silent version of the 11-minute long Scrooge, or Marley's Ghost, which was released in 1901 and which we actually played earlier. So for those of you who came in earlier, I think you probably watched all 11 minutes several times. Um, Scrooge there is played by Daniel Smith. Both Mr. Pickwick's Christmas and Scrooge were made by the same British director, Robert W. Paul, for the same company. And in fact, I believe Ian Christie did a talk on Robert Paul Um, A few months ago, so it might be worth kind of revisiting that on the app. But the first Dickensian film adaptation has to go for its close rival Oliver Twist, entitled Death of Nancy Sykes, S-Y-K-E-S, in 1897, and produced by the American Mutoscope Production Company. Other silent film versions of The Carol followed, which proves more than anything that it was expected that most of the audience could fill in the obvious gaps, because they already knew how the story went. In the cinema, Oliver Twist and A Christmas Carol have been about equally popular with filmmakers, but on television, A Christmas Carol far outstrips all the others although this becomes closer if you deduct the number of parodies of Carol perpetuated in comedy series, such as Blackadder's Christmas Carol. Oops, I've gone... Oh. There you go. Um, such as Blackadder's Christmas Carol, or even appearances of obvious Scrooge-like figures in long-running television series, such as um, Christmas specials such as The Ghost of Mrs Muir in 1969 in an episode entitled The Ghost and Christmas Past, Hear the Odd Couple in 1970 in an episode entitled Scrooge Gets an Oscar, Or even Moonlighting, 1981, which cast Sybil Shepherd as Scrooge in an episode entitled It's a Wonderful Job, as much a homage to It's a Wonderful Life as to the carol. There are musical versions, operatic versions, ballet versions, the list goes on. And don't worry, I'm not going to go into all of them. Increasing industrialisation at the time Dickens wrote the carol, movement of people to cities had gained momentum as Dickens' writing career began. And the writing of the carol was a response to the rising price of bread and increasing poverty um, and increasing hunger among the poorer classes. These were the hungry forties. The Dickens himself, who had experienced his own economic shocks as a child... Poverty was never far away. Another push to his fertile imagination came when he received a copy of the second report, Trade and Manufactures, of the Children's Employment Commission from the social reformer Thomas Southworth Smith. Smith was appalled and infuriated. Uh, Sorry, no, Dickens was appalled. I'm sure Smith was also um, appalled. But Dickens was appalled and infuriated by its descriptions of child labour and promised Smith that he would write a very cheap pamphlet called An Appeal to the People of England on behalf of the poor man's child. But shortly afterwards he wrote again to Smith saying that he would defer the production of the pamphlet. But rest assured that when you know and see what I do and where and how you will certainly feel that a sledgehammer has come down with 20 times the force, 20,000 times the force I could exert by following out my first idea. This piece was A Christmas Carol. So there's a strong political thrust to the story. How far does this come through in film adaptations? And are we looking for exact fidelity to the original text or an attempt to bring the text up to date to contemporary times to highlight contemporary issues? Most film versions stress the need to enjoy and celebrate Christmas fully. Scrooge's participation in the joy of Christmas at the end is usually treated as the moral of the story. Scrooge's life is symbolic of the dislocation and isolation of the displaced urban dweller of the 1840s. One of the few film adaptations to pick up on this point is probably the best-known version, made in 1951, and I think we many of us know it, starring Alistair Sim. There's lots of nods here. <laughs> um, the character, Mr. Jorkins, was created for the film and is played by Jack Warner, later famously the eponymous Dixon of Dot Green, in the long-running TV series. Fred Guida, in his excellent book, A Christmas Carol and Its Adaptations, notes why the screenwriter, Noel Langley, who had contributed earlier to the script of The Wizard of Oz and later wrote the screenplay for and directed The Pickwick Papers in 1952, um, starring James Hayter, why Noel Langley had gone beyond the original novel. What is most important is how Jorkins, and this is Guida commenting, injects a contextual note into the film that is absent in virtually all other versions and that informs but does not directly figure into Dickens' original text, namely the unrelenting juggernaut of change unleashed by the Industrial Revolution. So let's just see what he's talking about.
1: i seen enough. Yet more ways to look, you shall. Now see yourself in business, Ebenezer. Come, come, Mr. Fezziweek. We're good friends. I think besides good men of business, we're men of vision and progress. Why don't you sell out while the going's good? You'll never get a better offer, it's is George the the machine and the factory and the vested interest. We small traders are all history, Mr. Fezziweek. <laughs> Dodos. Yes, I dare say we are. And the offer is a very large one, I have to admit. But it's not just for money alone that one spends a lifetime building up a business, Mr. (laughs) Jorkin. Well, if it isn't, I'd like you to tell me what you do spend a lifetime building up a business for. It's to preserve a way of life that one knew and loved. No, I can't see my way to selling out to the new vested interests, Mr. Jorkin. I'll have to be loyal to the old ways and die out with them if needs must. Well, (laughs) you know what they say about time and tide, Mr. Fezziwig. They wait for no one. There's more in life than money, sir. Oh, excuse me, Mr Fezziwig, sir. Uh, Yes, yes, my boy. The foreman would appreciate a word with you if you can spare the time, sir. Uh, Yes, yes, of course. Excuse me a moment. (laughs) They can't teach an old dog new tricks, can they, Mr Scrooge? Nor teach the lepers to change its spots. Well, I, I think I know
0: what
1: Mr Fezziwig means, though,
0: sir. The, uh, the younger Scrooge is persuaded to leave Fezziwig's and join Jorkin's firm, where he meets Jacob Marley, who he finds of like mind, and I'll quote from the film, Marley, the world is on the verge of new and great changes, Mr Scrooge. Some of them of necessity will be violent. Do you agree? I'm probably not as good as Michael Horden in the role. <laughs> Scrooge Oh, I think the world's becoming a very hard and cruel place, Mr Marley. One must steal oneself to survive it, and not be crushed with the under with the weak and the infirm. Dickens felt that Scrooge represented a mindset that was at odds with humanity itself, and I think Noel Langley's got that in this this scene. Scrooge is so central a character that many films use the title Scrooge or a variation of it, rather than its actual title, A Christmas Carol. Scrooge is a part that is coveted by many mainstream actors, so naming the film Scrooge can help to highlight the big name attached to the part. These include not only Alistair Sim, but also Frederick March in 1954, Basil Rathbone in 1959, Mr Magoo in 1962 in the first animated version of the tale, Sterling Hayden 1964, we'll see a bit of that later, Albert Finney 1970 in a rather underrated musical version, George C. Scott 1984, Michael Caine, 1992, in a Muppet version, and not a lot of people know that. Um, <laughs> Jack Palance, 1998. Patrick Stewart, 1999. Kelsey Gramman, 2004. Jim Carrey, 2009. Christopher Plummer, 2017, and many others. Alistair Sim for me is the perfect Scrooge, but reviews at the time weren't so sure. One reviewer called him less a tight-fisted, squeezing, wretching miser than simply a, da- a dour, dyspeptic." On the other hand, Picture-goer magazine commented that Sim brings to his characterisation the touches of comedy that Dickens embedded in the miserly skinflint, while not de- neglecting the dramatic impact. Sim does, I think, convey Scrooge's unwillingness to be intimidated. While he's frightened by the appearance of Marley and the other ghosts, he does fight back. He refuses to be cowed by them. Thus, there is more of gravy than of grave shows his true spirit. This jokey semi-pun reveals the humour of the text, which in the hands of less talented actors can be lost. Scrooge may be, and I'm quoting from the text here, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous soul sinner, hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire, secret and self-contained, and solit- solitary as an oyster. But he is also the figure who wants, even as an older man, to join in the dancing at Fezziwig's, As the text relates, during the whole of this time, Scrooge had acted like a man out of his wits, his heart and soul were in the scene, and with his former self. I
1: recall this, no doubt. I recall it? Why, bless my soul, it's old physical Apprenticed here. Look, there's a Fezziwig and Mrs. Fezziwig. Top couple. <laughs> well, was there ever a kinder man. And yet, what does this party cost him in your mortal money? Three or four pounds at most. Is that so much that he deserves your praise? Oh, but it's not that. The happiness he gave to us, his clerks, and apprentices, and everybody who knew him was as great as if it had, as if it had cost a fortune. Mm -hmm. Uh What's the matter? Nothing. Something, I think. Just that I'd like to have a word with my own clerk, Bob Cratchit, just now. That's all.
0: Scrooge is a very physical presence in a world where movement is emphasised. It's important that Scrooge is seen throughout the film as worth saving. What's the point of the whole film if we don't? A man who had promised much, but who's become hardened by the unforgiving environment of his surroundings. In some film versions, the character's backstory is barely sketched in. We don't always see Scrooge seated alone at his school during the holidays, spurned by his father, until he's collected one year by his warm-hearted sister, Fan. But again, in the Alistair Sim version, Scrooge's backstory is even further filled in, as we learn that Scrooge's father had blamed him for the death of his mother at his birth. Portrayed in this film as an elder sister, Fan, who in the text is actually younger than him, also dies in childbirth. So Scrooge's antipathy towards his nephew Fred is partly explained as he subsequently blames Fred for the death of his sister, as he was blamed by his own father. Scrooge's immediate need to apportion blame in this film means that he leaves before he can hear his beloved sister's dying words, asking him to look after her child. One wonders about the... um, value of her husband um, at this point, but never mind. Um, By leaving these details out, some versions, such as the earlier 1935 version with Seymour Hicks, make it impossible to understand how Scrooge became the kind of person we initially see. And now Seymour Hicks was a renowned Dickensian, I'll just stop here for a moment. Um, He was a renowned Dickensian actor of the theatre, and he actually appeared in two film versions, one in 1913, a silent version, and then later in 1935. I have to say, in the 1913 version, he looks like he should be playing Magwitch, but, but who am I to question this? One aspect of the backstory does appear in the 1935 version with Hicks. Here, the ghost of Christmas past shows young Scrooge's rejection by his fiancée, Belle, when she overhears him refusing to give a young couple more time to pay their debt. He tells her that, as a woman, she should not interfere in the world of business. This version later reflects the text precisely when it shows Belle as a happily married woman with a room full of at least 16 children. How very Victorian, assuming that they are all her own. Her husband is a loving, successful man who's just seen Scrooge sitting alone in his office through the window. The emphasis here and in Bell's earlier rejection of Scrooge is that his life's choice will mean that he will always be alone without the benefits of that institution that Victorians held so dear, the family. In the 1951 Sim version with her name changed to Alice, Bell Alice, they get, the name changes a lot, um, we see his former fiancé tending to the poor as a spinster rather than become the wife and mother that Dickens describes in the story thus leaving the door open to the reformed Scrooge, perhaps finding happiness with her again. Some versions change the order of events in the story, not always to good effect. In the 1935 version, Scrooge's redemption comes too early, before the ghost of Christmas present appears. And I'll just do that, that's, that's the 1935 um, poster. Um, In the 1935 version, Scrooge's redemption comes too early. At the end, he not only supplies Bob with the turkey, but also gives him Boxing Day off as well, which was very advanced of him, as it wasn't actually an official bank holiday until 1871. (laughs) But the 1935 film is very watchable, especially since it depicts a London that is as close in time to Victorian London as we can actually get without being in the 19th century. It even has a scene of Bob Cratchit sliding down on the icy road on Corn Hill. I hope you can see this. There we go, lots of sliding in this. And there's Bob Pratchett. Oh, yes, he's going to have a go. Uh, Later it contains a wonderful sequence which I was tempted to show you but it's actually slightly too dark to see properly, moving from lighthouse to sailors to Scrooge's nephew, showing how they all keep Christmas, a sequence often omitted in later versions. But there's no scene showing the lonely school child Scrooge and no Scrooge's sister and so we have no sense of how Scrooge fell into the emotional vacuum of his later years. Interestingly, this is one of the few versions to show Tiny Tim lying dead in his bed, Patrick Stewart's is the other one, a reference which is in the text itself when Bob sits down next to Tiny Tim's bed and kissed the little face. This 1935 film is notable for a rather bizarre extended scene of the Lord Mayor's Banquet. Uh, is this still working? With a rather comic turn of two under chefs testing the wine with rather too much relish, this only features in a single line of the actual text. The Lord Mayor in the stronghold of the awful Mansion House gave orders to his fifty cooks and butlers to keep Christmas as Lord Mayor's household should. Let's have a look.
2: the Loyal post. My lords, ladies and gentlemen, pray silence for the Right Honorable the Lord Mayor of London, my lord. <clears throat> my lords, ladies and gentlemen, Her most gracious majesty, the queen.
0: It's good to see the poor are in such good voice. Um, The mountains of food here are contrasted with the poor outside of the kitchens who are generously thrown scraps by the kitchen staff. The scene is rounded off with the lower rendition of God Save the Queen, in which you heard the poor join in. This is not a version that shows a social division between rich and poor intended as central by Dickens, it's rather the contrary. But compare this Lord Mayor's scene with the 2009 Jim Carrey version, uh, which is a Walt Disney version and I will come back to this later, which again shows the preparation for the Lord Mayor's feast with the starving kids outside the window, forced to compete for scraps. Of that window, just like in the earlier version. Oh,
2: Merry Christmas from his Lordship, the Mayor.
0: So the kids here are forced to compete for the scraps thrown dismissively by the chef with um, um, and of course the dog takes them. The emphasis here is one of social division, much closer to Dickens' original intentions. And I thought it was useful to show that, the two different versions, especially since it's a Lord Mayor's scene and we are here at Gresham College. Um, The first American sound version of the film was in 1938 by MGM and it was meant to star Lionel Barrymore, who'd often played Scrooge in radio adaptations, but he was crippled with arthritis and had to be replaced by Reginald Owen. This MGM version dispenses with much of the hard-hitting social and political messages. There are no figures of wanton ignorance, but instead it centres on a reformed Scrooge who proclaims that he loves Christmas quite early on. There's an emphasis on the slide down Corn Hill. In fact, everyone's sliding. Fred is desperate to slide, but is prevented by his fiance until the vicar comes out of a church and enjoys a sneaking slide when, um, um, at the time. It's much more about the joy of Christmas. Fred, Scrooge's nephew, is engaged, but his marriage cannot take place until he's able to support a wife. And, and the reformed Scrooge actually makes him a partner in his firm at the end. Also qualifies as having one of the fattest Bob Cratchits I've ever seen, um, played by Jean Lockhart, certainly someone who could give up on a few meals to help out his <laughs> supposedly starving family. Is this a response to the growing storm clouds of war across Europe, remember we're talking 1938, a need to celebrate Christmas rather than a reminder of social deprivation? No film versions were made during the Second World War, and the centenary of the story's publication in 1943 passed by with very little publicity. In fact, American film companies didn't didn't produce another film version of the Carol for another 40 years. Although versions were made for television, however, exactly 100 years after the publication of the Carol, a short story, "The Greatest Gift" by Philip Van Doren Stern, was privately printed and given to friends for Christmas. This, oh, I'm going to have to skip that. This was um, um, made into a film in 1946 by Frank Capra and was It's a Wonderful Life. Known as Capra's Christmas Carol and reviewed by James Agee in The Nation, um, it was seen as one of the most efficient sentimental pieces since A Christmas Carol. George Bailey, the James Stewart character, appears as a latter-day American Cratchit, the hero of the film while the parallels were underlined by the fact that the avaricious and the wicked Mr. Potter is played by Lionel Barrymore. Capra admitted that A Christmas Carol was one of his favorite books. He actually owned owned a proof copy among his collection of rare books. But I think the link goes further between this film and Dickens' text. Capra's film shows the impact that a good person's life can have when he touches other people's lives positively, even though the James Stewart character does not realise this himself. It is the supernatural element again, this time in the form of Clarence the Angel, second class, who gives him a chance to see what the world would be like without him. Strange, isn't it, he continues. Each man's life touches so many other lives. The fact that this is all achieved by an angel, not ghosts, highlights the very Christian aspect of the film. In Scrooge's case, he has to learn how to touch other lives and does so in the end, the uh, the obvious example being that Tiny Tim did in fact live. Other parallels are also evident. The slide down Cornhill is reflected in the young boys sliding on the ice, which leads to George's brother falling through the ice and being saved by him. The point being that when Bailey, Stuart is shown a version of life as as if he'd never been born, his brother had died in the icy water and cannot save the troops um, in the Second World War as he, in his turn, is not alive to save them. Um, So let's just look at a scene which I think is very much like the end of uh, the, The Christmas Carol when Scrooge sees his own grave marker.
2: You know this is Bailey Park? No, I'm not sure of anything anymore. All I know is this should be Bailey Park. But where are the houses? We went here to build them.
1: Your brother Harry Bailey broke through the ice and was drowned at the age of nine.
2: That's a lie. Harry Bailey went to war. He got the Congressional Medal of Honor. He saved the lives of every man on that
1: transport. Every man on that transport died. Harry wasn't there to save them because you weren't there to save Harry.
2: You see, George, you really
1: had a wonderful life.
0: At the end, George Bailey shouts that he wants to live. Surely another nod to Scrooge's desire to go on living so that he can make good his past errors. How many film versions of The Carol raise the wider issue of social inequality and poverty? How many are as hard-hitting as the sledgehammer that Dickens promised in terms of its political criticism? One of the specific references to look for is the appearance of the children underneath the ghost of Christmas Present. Symbolic representations of want and ignorance. Not all versions have these. The 1935 Hicks and the 1938 MGM versions do not, for instance. Directors often delete the scene with the ghost of Christmas yet to come, in which Scrooge's housekeeper, laundress and the undertaker go to old Joe's the rag and bottle shop to sell some of his belongings. Of course, the scene shows that Scrooge's unreformed life has left him without a protector after his death, that he's truly alone, with no one to mourn him and protect his dead corpse. But again, the 1951 version goes a little further, so let's just have a quick look at that.
1: He was telling me, you see, in his own little way, that he's happy. Truly happy now, and that we must cease to grieve for him and try to be happy too.
2: Oh, Tim, my tiny my dear. Dear.
0: Creaking door really adds to that scene. We've, had, we've got Tiny Tim's death and then we go and see the wretched tubercular children picking up materials in the pawnbroker's shop to sort them through. It adds to the earlier um, horrifyingly real presentation of the allegorical children of want and ignorance. But film versions of A Christmas Carol usually treat the story as an opportunity for Victorian nostalgia, focusing on the Victorian Christmas and celebrating a traditional version of the festival and the Christmas spirit. Poverty and social criticism would be rather jarring in this context and are usually left out. Dickens's social vision becomes a psychological one, with Scrooge's redemption not linked to a wider social context normally. Still, the story is so well known that there are a number of attempts to update it. One recent example is in book form. Um, (laughs) Donald Trump presents DT's A DT Christmas Carol, being a ghost story of democracy. A A 1975 version... Um, has one of the first female Scrooges. But unfortunately, The Passions of Carol um, is a pornographic film which features Carol Scrooge, spelled S-C-R-E-W-G-E, the tyrannical proprietor of a sex magazine. This is a rather weird film which shows Carol being taken through Soho by a phantom ghost with a spooky high-pitched background theme. Let's just watch a bit. (laughs) Don't worry, it's not the most pornographic bit. Not so much pornographic as catatonic, really. <laughs> There's also a raft of recent American TV versions, many of whom have female leads, where the moral of the story appears to be that a female Scrooge is really a desiccated career woman who needs love to reform her. So, for example, Ebby, 1995, America, plays a cold-hearted businesswoman who works through Christmas. Or Moose Scrooge, 1997, has Cicely Tyson playing a modern-day Scrooge whose life has been blighted when her father lost all his money in a grocery store venture. There are many more, including a Barbie version made in 2008. Of greater significance is Carol for Another Christmas in 1964, produced by Rod Serling, who conceived the cult series The Twilight Zone. It's an anti-nuclear propaganda play sponsored by the United Nations, specifically by the Telson Foundation, standing for Television Series for the United Nations. Um, it's the Telson Foundation was an organization founded in an attempt to tackle widespread hostility towards it amongst the American people. Directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz, who incidentally produced the earlier 1938 version, this had music by Henry Mancini, it included Sterling Hayden, Robert Shaw, Ava Marie Saint, Ben Gazzara, and Peter Sellers. This is a propaganda film directed against American isolationism after the Second World War and in support of the UN's mission to try to avert a nuclear war. It concerns a Daniel Grudge, a.k.a. Scrooge, a man of considerable wealth and power whose mourning over his son Marley's death in a foreign war has led him to adopt a strongly isolationist point of view. Just as Dickens calls for charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence, this version calls for engagement and talking with one's fellow man as a means of avoiding war. His nephew Fred tries to persuade him to support a cultural exchange program, which Grudge rejects on the grounds that America should help themselves first. Where have I heard that before? Um, The ghost of Christmas past is a First World War soldier who shows Grudge the tombs of all the soldiers of all nationalities who have died and then shows him the site of Hiroshima, where children affected by the nuclear bomb are dying. The ghost of Christmas present sits at the head of the table feasting, but shows Grudge, the starving refugees displaced by war.
2: I'll tell you how many times you've stuffed yourself while two-thirds of the world starved in a cage. Yeah. Throw bone. Don't you talk to me like that. I have feelings. There's Nothing on this earth could force me to eat while starving people watch me. Right. Watching makes all the difference, what? You never saw them while tearing into your mashed potatoes. They weren't actually there when you buttered your bread. There. Better, Mr. Grudge? Appetite back? Two. Sit down. You're going to have to explain the logic of man to me, Mr. Grudge. For example, tell me how you come about your selective morality. This ease with which you strip off your conscience like an overcoat. And let your satisfied belch drown out the hunger cries that fill the air around you. How do you create this exact science whereby you disinvolve yourself From all the anguish of the world, it doesn't happen to be in your direct line of vision. What doesn't take a special breed of man at all, Mr. Grudge, that is man in his normal condition. No, no, man isn't cruel. I don't think I'm cruel. But we can't, at least, at least I can, spend my time grieving because part of the world is rich and part of it is poor. Because part of it has and part of it has not. But we see, we actually see human beings in want. We react. We respond. <laughs> is that a fact, Mr. Grudge? Do you insist upon making it a better world? Won't you die happy until you do? do you insist upon helping the needy and oppressed? Then tell them to help themselves. Let them know the cash drawer is closed and make them believe it. You'll be surprised how much less needy and oppressed the needy and oppressed turn out to be.
0: The third ghost shows him a post-apocalyptic world devastated by nuclear war, but still there are madmen denying the efficacy of working together to find a solution.
2: What you see before you, Mr Grudge, is a tiny part of a big, round, radioactive mud-burying ground. Is it all like this? Is the whole world a burying ground? All of it. All of the town in all of the meeting places in all of the countries of the world just like this did no one speak out was there no single voice of reason but what about the the united nations it was supposed to keep the peace the united oh (laughs) that town meeting hall Oh, yes, well, that went some time back, I'm afraid. You see, they dropped out. Or maybe we dropped out. Anyway, somebody dropped out. And pretty soon, everybody was dropping or had dropped out. And before anybody knew it, the talking had stopped. But there were voices, Mr. Grudge. The world didn't lack for sound behind each separate hence each separate war came screams of anger suspicion and prejudice and they grew and they grew but there were no answers remember no discussion no place for it and so in the end the world was filled with the noise of hate and inevitably ah. Of the earth the fittest who happen to survive the leftovers of the crap game after they rolled the h-bomb and nobody made their point <laughs>
0: 60s so the Beatles were servant Charles who who represents the Bob Cratchit figure and he's the only one who actually tries to change minds and he's actually shot for it at the end of this scene. Um, In keeping with the times um, the reform grudge is shown at the end on Christmas morning eating a meal with um, Charles and his wife. Uh, Interestingly, this was actually made after Kubrick's Doctor Strangelove, which of course is another anti-nuclear film in '64 with Peter Sellers and again Sterling Hayden. Scrooge, 1975, a mere 20 minutes in length, has Ron Moody portraying a detestable television chief. At one point, George, uh, Scrooge is decried by representatives from a citizen study group of mass media and social responsibility, who express their shock at the sensationalism and trivialization of television. To gain the necessary ratings response, audience increases, greater profits, a larger slice of the market. But in a clever reworking of the text, Scrooge responds with, is there not an off switch on every television in the land? Produced with, a, with an unbelievable small budget, even at the time, of £423, it was a pilot film based on an idea of a then-student at the Royal College of Art um, in London, Norman Stone, who later directed Shadowlands in eighty-five. This may have informed the more commercial Scrooge in 1988. Um, Largely played for laughs, the social criticism centres on the role of the media, and the Scrooge character, named Frank Cross, Bill Murray, is a ruthless leader of a US media giant. It opens in Santa's workshop, which is attacked by some faceless enemies wielding machine guns. Lee Majors of the Million Dollar Man fame joins Santa Claus to help protect the workshop. We presume there's a resulting bloodbath. Although we don't see it in fact, of course, this is one of the cynically commercial seasonal offerings from Murray's television company. The potential of the violence in this opening scene is reflected later in the tiny Tim figure who refuses to talk since his own father since he saw his own father gunned down in front of him. His mother, the Bob Cratchit figure, is Murray's personal secretary and is coping as a single mum with four children. She is hardworking, moral, and dedicated to her job, but her bonus for the year from her Scrooge-like boss is a towel. The, but the ghost of Christmas past is portrayed rather funnily as a cigar-chomping New York taxi driver.
1: I cut through the park and take me over to Whoa! Hey!
0: Whoa! Oh. Oh. Whoa! Ah!
2: How do you know my name? I know absolutely everything, Frank. You see, I'm the ghost. <laughs> I
0: love the fact the tax is so grungy. <laughs> hey, you don't mind if I smoke,
2: do you? Smoke, smoke, just try! <laughs>
0: use of fog in that scene um, um going back to my first book um in the background the television company is rehearsing for a live broadcast of a christmas carol with books and sexy dancers and american actors with entirely false english accents perhaps a homage to dick van dyke in mary poppins a reference to the 1951 alistair sim version is made when the mute boy watches it on tv of course in the end he finds his voice and says god bless us everyone I'm just going to pass over the Muppet version because I don't have a huge amount to say on it. It's perfectly okay. Um, it's only to the poor is a shivering rabbit wrapped in newspaper. Although the mice do ask for cheese. Michael Caine makes a perfectly reasonable Scrooge and there's a nice little in-joke of the name of the shop in the background being Micklewhite, which is Caine's actual surname. In 2009, The Carol was produced as a 3D computer animated fantasy with Jim Carrey's Scrooge, and in fact, he also voices all the ghosts, perhaps indicating that they are an extension of Scrooge himself. It's very much based on the Alastair Sims earlier portrayal, um, and again, it portrays a very physical Scrooge, much more physical than Sim. It can do, of course, because it's it's computer animated. It has lots of fog in keeping with a film set in Victorian times. Because it's an animated version, it can easily portray the coldness that exudes from Scrooge. I've already alluded to um, this version before, um, in the dismissive way Scraps are thrown at the Lord Mayor's dinner. This is a Disney version, but it's surprisingly hard-hitting. The dead body of Marley in 1836, they get the date right, where Scrooge is so mean that he even takes the pennies from Marley's eyes as he lies in his coffin. Because it's animated, it includes a very physical Cornhill slide. There's a very scary phantom scene outside Scrooge's window as Marley's ghost leaves it. It stays true to the original text, however, and do note Dickens' portrait hanging on the wall of the Cratchits' house. This version is the sledgehammer that Dickens promised. The children of ignorance and want are shown clearly as closer to animals than children.
2: A spirit's lives so short. My life upon this globe is very brief. It ends tonight, tonight, tonight. ...at midnight. Hark. The time is drawing near.
1: Forgive me. Did I see something strange protruding from your skirts? Is it a foot or a claw?
2: It might be a claw for the scant amount of flesh there is upon it. Look here. Oh man, look here. Look. Look down here. Are they yours? they are mans this boy is ignorance this girl is want beware them both
0: The Carol, uh, for many filmmakers, is purely an excuse to portray a Christmas that is filled with Victorian nostalgia, and so they tone down the social criticism. criticism. There's no reason to allow a good story to be marred by scenes of poverty and want, as MGM's lavish 1938 production shows. It can come as no surprise that my particular favourite has always been the 1951 Sim version. This adds to the social criticism which reflects the continuing austerity of post-war Britain, so tellingly reflected in George Orwell's 1949 novel, 1984, just as Dickens' Christmas Carol resonates with a time of increasing industrialisation. The Beveridge Report had come out in 1942, aiming to eradicate the five great giant evils, two of which were want and ignorance. This film version was a timely reflection on progress achieved. The 2009 Jim Carrey, another sledgehammer version, was made at the time of economic crisis in the USA following the bank failures of the previous year. But there's always another version just around the corner. And I see that this Christmas there's a new adaptation on BBC television with Guy Pearce as Scrooge. Will it reflect a time of austerity and anxiety? Or will it be a chocolate box version of Victorian nostalgia? We'll have to wait and see.